The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. The rest of us will continue in our study of Genesis chapter 2. We have guests today. Uh, Just about every week we have guests, we have visitors, sometimes first-time visitors, and that was a treat to meet some folks this morning. So just to orient those of you or either new, visiting, haven't been here in a while. We're studying the book of Genesis, just the first chapters. Uh, so the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible. And we're going to emphasize the first three chapters. We're now in chapter 2. We finished chapter 1, which is the first page in your Bible. Now, whether you know anything about the Bible or, at all or not, maybe you've never read it or studied it. Um, maybe you've read it, but it was a long time ago and you forgot. Maybe you don't even think you believe in the Bible. Or maybe you've studied it many times before. I think the study of Genesis chapters 1 and 2 has something very important for all of us, no matter where you're coming from or what you think or believe. Because Genesis chapter 1 that we just finished studying answers one of the most important questions that everybody asks universally, regardless of where you come from, your religious background, your faith, uh, your belief in God or the lack thereof, doesn't matter. Genesis chapter 1 actually answers the most important universal questions that human beings around the globe and throughout history ask. Things like, why am I here on earth and how did I get here? Or, where did all of this stuff come from? Everybody at some point asks those questions. Well, Genesis answers that question very deliberately, specifically in Genesis chapter 1. So we just finished studying Genesis chapter 1, where God, God himself, answers the question of how everything came to be and why there are humans on the earth, among many other questions that are, that are answered. So that's God's version. That is his rendition. And we just took it a straight uh, face value, straightforward. Real history, because that's the way it was written in the Hebrew, is Hebrew historical narrative. We also took it literally as history because Moses, the author who wrote Genesis in 1400 B.C., he believed it literally. So the Genesis account, uh, we're going to go Genesis 1 through 3, is the only account about how things came to be that the Bible has to offer. So if you're a Christian, this is the only legitimate version that we have as Christians to explain how we got here and how everything else got here and what God thinks about it. There are no other competing views that are legitimate for a Christian. And I'm talking about the literal face value version given by Moses in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. I know for a fact that Moses wrote it according to Scripture and Jesus. I know for a fact that Moses believed it literally. Not only did Moses believe it, but all the Jews from Moses to Jesus believed Genesis chapter 1 through 3. They took it literally. They believed it was from God. And get this, there were no competing interpretations for them did you know that the apostles didn't believe in darwinian evolution interpretation of genesis 1 through 3 i know that for a fact how can you prove that pastor cliff because darwin wasn't born yet that's how i know among other things so think about it throughout old testament history all the people of god since the time of moses for example dave king david of israel possessed the old testament all of which had been written he possessed the torah genesis He knew it well. He studied it. He was an expert 
in Hebrew and in the Bible and in Genesis, and that is the only version that King David believed about how all things came into being. Not just David, but all the other men and women of God in the Old Testament who had access to the Hebrew Scriptures. So that would mean all the prophets, they believed Genesis chapter 1 at face value. All of them. Ezra, Nehemiah, you, you name it, they believed it. Then you get to the New Testament. Jesus possessed the entirety of the Old Testament to, as what we have today. Jesus was a Hebrew scholar. He was a Jew. He was a rabbi. He was a master of the Old Testament. Jesus knew Genesis. He quoted from Genesis. He taught on Genesis. He took Genesis 1 and 2 literally at face value. There were no other interpretations or competing views that Jesus would refer to. The Apostle Paul, the second greatest Jewish rabbi there ever was, next to Jesus, knew Genesis, taught from Genesis, was an expert on Genesis, and he took it at face value. And there was only one interpretation that Paul had of Genesis, and it was the literal historical view written by Moses. There were no competing views. The Apostle Peter and all the other apostles had the same view of Genesis. And pretty much all the other Christians in the first hundred years after the church was started. That, that is significant to think about and meditate upon. Because if we're going to take an alternative view of how we should read, understand, interpret, and apply Genesis 1 through 3, then we've got to answer the question, well, what about Jesus? We're, we are then in conflict with Jesus' understanding and view of Genesis. Do you really want to put yourself in that position, especially if you are a Christian and you call Jesus as Lord? So I, this transition between chapter 1 and 2, I wanted to just highlight that just to give us some perspective. But let's go ahead and look at now in chapter 2. So we looked at the first six days. At one point, it was just the Trinity, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit existed. Creation didn't exist. Angels didn't exist. Humans didn't exist. Nothing. It was just God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who existed eternally with one another in perfect harmony and unity and satisfaction before creation was brought into existence in eternity past. That's mind-boggling. And then God deliberated the triune God, and decided to create this earth, the solar system, and humanity for his purpose and for his glory, by his good pleasure. And he did. And he created everything on the first day, brought all the required ingredients to fashion the earth and the cosmos into existence. And then over the course of the next five and a half days, he fashioned that material progressively until it reached the pinnacle of this beautiful masterpiece and it was exactly the way he wanted it. The entire, entire solar system, perfect, without sin, without error, without death, perfect harmony, perfect unity, according to his master plan. And he blessed it on the sixth day, saying, it is very good. It was a world very much different than the world we have today. We just had this massive hurricane coming down, um, devastating entire states and cities and even taking the lives of some people. There were no hurricanes and devastation and natural disasters after genesis chapter one after the sixth day because it was very good life was perfect it was a paradise but things changed we're going to see that in chapter three but so god finishes creation on day six he looks at it says it is very good he hasn't said he's finished yet and that's where we're moving today and that would be day seven so let's go ahead and look at uh, chapter two verses one through three and we're going to see what happens on the next day that comes in sequence, day seven of creation, thousands of years ago. 
And this is the interpretation given by God through his prophet Moses as he was moved by the Holy Spirit, recorded in your Bible for us today, preserved so graciously by God so that you can know the truth with confidence of how all things came to be. The end of uh, chapter 1, verse 31 concludes by saying God blessed it the sixth day. Actually, all of his creation said it was very good. And there was evening, and that's 12 hours. And then there was morning, another 12 hours. That's 24 hours. The sixth day, verse 2, follow along. Verses 1 through 3, thus or so, the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all of his work, which God had created and made. So let's go ahead. If you have an an outline there, I made three points that I just want to highlight. In each one of the verses, I just made one simple, emphatic point. And so that's our outline today. So we'll just look at verse 1, then verse 2, and verse 3, and then some application or implications for us at the end. In these first three verses of chapter 2, talking about what happened on day 7. By the way, when Moses wrote this, he didn't have these numbers and chapter breaks. It was just continuous. I don't know if he did it on a papyrus reed or some kind of a scroll. Just kept writing. So these breaks you see between chapter 2, verse 31, chapter, or chapter 1, and then verse 31, and then chapter 2 begins. That's uh, fictitious or fabricated or not in the original. That isn't how Moses wrote it. So actually, verses 1 through 3 go with chapter 1. It's a, it's a complete thought, complete entity, a complete unit, and it should stay together. And that's how we will understand it. This is day seven. So we want to look at the meaning and then also the implications for us of verses one, two, and three. But before we do that, I wanted to kind of step back and ask you, just be reminded, we want to be good students of God's word. We want to understand the word of God because the Bible is different than all other books. We know that because it claims to be the word of God, sacred scripture. Uh, God spoke or uh, gave divine truth, and then it was written down by his prophets. So the Bible is different than any other book. We want to understand it. We want to understand it to the best of our ability. We don't want to neglect any of it. And we want to understand it in detail. We also don't want to change any of the meaning. And we have to give attention to detail when God speaks, particularly in his word. So we need to look at the details as we go through. Very important. Jesus said that in Matthew and the Gospels when he said publicly that man does not live, humans don't live by bread alone, but on Get this, every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, every word was important to Jesus. So as I go through and in, interpret this passage, I am going to emphasize and highlight every word, even if it's a boring old conjunction. So, thus, then, whoop-de-doo. No, it's important. Jesus said every word. Not only every word, Jesus also said in Matthew 5, every jot and every tittle. What does that mean? That means every letter in Scripture. Not only every letter, but every part of every letter is important. So that needs to be our view of Scripture. That's how it's going to be when we interpret the Bible. So which takes me to golden rule number one of in Bible interpretation, good Bible interpretation. So here's a pop quiz. You ready? It's what is golden rule number one of good Bible interpretation? What is uh, the number one rule of good hermeneutics? I'll let you think. Okay, you can shout it out if you want. Uh, if you didn't shout it out, well, here's the answer. 
it's actually getting the right translation. We don't think of that very often, but it's got to start there. So that's what I want to do. I want to reread Genesis 2, 1 through 3, with a proper translation based on the literal Hebrew text. And that's very important. You're going to see that. The reason that's important is because countless false views, even heresies, have been propounded, taught, preached, practiced as a result sometimes just of having the wrong translation of what the Bible actually says. So it starts with, you've got to have the right translation first. That's step number one in good Bible interpretation. That's why it's so important to know the Hebrew and the Greek of your Bible or a good resource who's going to do that properly for you. And the reason, I just think of why this is so practically important. I have a, I know a brother in the Lord, he's a sweet Christian, but he's a King James guy, you know, written in 1611. It's archaic, it's old, it's 400 plus years old. Some of the terminology there is out of date or we don't even use those words. Sometimes it uses terminology that wouldn't be the best way to translate the Bible, but that's all they have. 1611 in the English King James Version, he's King James guy, and he thinks that the organ is the most spiritual instrument on planet Earth, and he's an elder in a church, and he lives his life accordingly and even voices it, and he's proud of it, and that's God's, he told me, that's God's instrument, the organ. The, the organ. And he's kind of down on other instruments like the electric guitar and stuff because that, that's not from God. But anyway, as, so in a conversation, I said, where did that come from? I said, well, it's in Genesis chapter 4, verse 21. Jubal, that very gifted man early on in history. Jubal, very gifted. Boy, when Genesis mentions a guy's name, that guy is very important and significant because Genesis doesn't mention a whole lot of guys' names. Sometimes it doesn't even mention people's names who you'd think were important, like Noah's wife. What's her name? I don't know. It's just Noah's wife for five chapters, Noah's wife. But Jubal, very important guy. Why is he so important? Because he was an absolute genius. He was probably an engineer. That's my hunch, Jubal. Engineers here, that's your life verse right there. Genesis 4.21, and it says that he was so amazing, so profound, so genius, so gifted, so insightful, so equipped by God. He did an amazing, profound thing, a legacy that he gave to humanity that has gone on for thousands of years. What is that? He was an instrument maker. And in particular, it mentions two kinds of instruments. Uh, the King James Bible says like that he made the lyre and the organ. And that's why my friend believes that the organ is the most divinely inspired instrument on planet Earth even to this day, because that's what the King James Bible says. Uh, the problem is that isn't what the Hebrew text says. And that's why modern-day English translations say that Jubal invented, they'll use words like the lyre and the flute or the lyre and the pipe. And the Hebrew emphasis there is really on instruments that you use with your fingers and instruments that you blow that require air. Today we would call those strings and winds. Or things you blow and things you pluck. You could put almost any instrument on planet Earth under those two categories. Really. And it's intricate, amazing engineering design to produce those kind of instruments. That's why it was so profound. Those aren't easy to make. Even a kazoo. I couldn't make a kazoo. Or bagpipe. It's amazing. Well, thank you to Jubal. Some of you might be saying, well, you can't fit drum under those two categories. Well, yeah, nobody invented the drum. You just bang, bang, bang. Bam, remember Bam Bam and the Flintstones? Bam, bam. Anyway, so that didn't take genius, although it's nice to add percussion to our music. But anyway, that was just a long illustration to show you how just one word 
in translation is so important. So let me give you a legitimate translation here that takes into account specific words used by Moses as he wrote this. Okay, here we go. I'll just read it to you verse by verse. Uh, Verse 1 of chapter 2, thus were completed, because the verb comes first in the sentence, it is emphatic. That's important. None of the English Bibles do that, but they should, because the thus is connected to the verb were completed, and that's the way it should be kept. Thus were completed the heavens and the earth and all their hosts. Hosts is plural. The New American Standard has it as plural, and that's good. Unfortunately, the ESV and the King James don't. They have it singular. That should not be the case. It's clearly plural in Hebrew. Hosts, plural, and then NIV says, instead of host, it says vast array. I don't even know what that means. Sounds like some lady's closet, the vast array. So, sorry, you NIV people. So, verse 1, thus were completed, with emphasis, the heavens and the earth and all their hosts, or literally you could translate it as all their inhabitants, or all that was therein. Then verse 2, by the seventh day God completed his work, which he had done, and he ceased, is the best translation. Most of the English translations say rest, rested. The best translation is ceased. That's what the word means. That's how that word is used in other books of the Bible, when the manna ceased coming down from heaven. didn't rest, it ceased. Same word. The New English translation gets this right and uses the word ceased. Good for them. And God, he ceased on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. And then verse three, then God blessed the seventh day and he sanctified it. Some translations say he hallowed it, made it holy. That's fine. Those are synonyms. And he sanctified it because in it, he ceased the better word from all of his work, which God had created and made the end of verse three. Two verbs are used very specifically. These two verbs right in the middle is the word Elohim, created and made, that God created and made. So all the translations should have God, capital G, God created and made. All translations don't have God's name, Elohim, there. For whatever reason, that's sad. You don't eliminate God's name. So the NIV and the ESV eliminate God's name at the end of verse 3. They shouldn't have. And then the ESV at the very end, they say creation instead of created as a verb. So if you wanted to change, if you have a ESV and it says creation, you can change that to created and be up to snuff, faithful to the Hebrew text, like all those NASB people out there. So there it is. And so that's the basis of our translation by which we will get an interpretation. And after doing all this, I gave all the respective English Bibles a grade in the translation of Genesis 2, 1 through 3. Are you ready? Now, you don't need to throw your Bible away after this, after your Bible gets a C- minus or whatever. You can keep your Bible. That's okay. Because they all, they're all good at other different points. So on this passage, the ESV, unfortunately, got a C-. minus. That was not the best. Uh, sometimes they're the best, but not here. The NIV got a C. Way to go, NIV people. See, you beat the ESV people. Take that. People making fun of NIV people all the time. King James Bible. Man, those guys were sharp. Most of the time, B-. minus. It's pretty good. And then the NASB, A-. minus. There you go. So let's go ahead and look at our outline and look at this important passage together, what God might have to say, what happened on the seventh day. Let's start with point number one. Like I said, I broke these down into just three points, is the completion. So day seven, point number one is the completion. And that word completion, I took it right out of the text. I'm not just trying to make alliteration or to make it look cute and fancy. We want to represent the truth and the main truth being taught there. And the word completion is what is being emphasized 
in verse 1, the completion, God's creation was finished. Just look at a couple of key words. The NASB starts with thus. That's that conjunction that begins the verse. That's important. It's like it's one letter in Hebrew. told you about it. It's called the, 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 the vav or the wow. And it's a conjunction. And Moses used it at the beginning of almost every verse that he wrote or in our English Bible. And usually translated as and, 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 or thus, thus, so, now. Usually and. Usually and is the best translation. And I pointed out that the reason that Moses is doing this is because he's not writing poetry. He is writing narrative. This is typical of narrative. It's this conjunction attached to a verb in a certain tense. This is clearly Hebrew narrative, not poetry. And also, the way he uses this conjunction tells us that even that translation, thus, it's carrying on the story. We continue the story now. We're picking up from day six. We're going in order. We're going in sequence. There's a logical progression. This is a historical reality. There's development as moved along by God from day to day. Even that all packed up in that little word, thus. Or what we call the wow consecutive, or just this little conjunction in Hebrew. Very important. Thus, let's, con- thus, let's continue the story. Let's go on. We're not done yet. The completion. Thus, we're completed. The verb actually comes first. So it is emphatic in terms of its position. That's what Moses wants to highlight. Thus, we're completed. Um, and, and it's an interesting form of the Hebrew. I'm not going to go into it. For you Hebrew scholars out there, it's the pu'al stem, which is not the normal stem. And that, what does that mean? That means that Moses writes a form of this verb to be deliberately two things, intensive, kind of an emphatic intensification of the truth he's trying to communicate. It's not just God kind of finished or God. King James says God ended. No. That's, you can end something and not be complete with it. You can end something and not be done. You can end something and not be finished exactly the way you want it. Completed is the word and it has implications. The, the tense of the verb is intensifying the meaning that it was completed. And also the form of the verb in this case, it was passive. It was, the action was done to it. God did something to the earth. God did something to the creation. What did he do? God. God is in charge. Creation didn't, didn't involve, evolve on its own randomly without some designer in charge, some creator dictating step by step. It was passive. God did it. He did the action. Very important. And it's emphatic. Thus is how we should translate it. Thus, were completed the heavens and the earth. Thus, totally, completely finished exactly the way Elohim wanted it was the heavens and the earth. And immediately Moses takes us back. Well, the heavens and the earth, what's that? Well, that's how he started chapter 1, verse 1. That's the first phrase in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He brought them into existence, and then he began to fashion them. And he finishes that fashioning process like a master artisan by day six, so that by day seven, it is done. It is finished. It is complete. Utterly the way God wants it. That's the implication. And like I said, what uh, that phrase there, the heavens and the earth, uh, and then Moses adds, well, what's the heavens and the earth? Well, it's what I mentioned in verse one, but also and all their hosts, all the inhabitants, all that was created after verse one the heaven god created the heavens and the earth and then he added and created other things that he filled the the tohu and bohu with 
Like the sun, moon, and stars, the inhabitants of God's creation, he added to that on day four. Like the land animals that he added, all their inhabitants, all their hosts, that's what, that's what that means. The heavens and the earth and all that he created throughout the course of six days. All of it. It was done. It was complete. And everything that he created was complete. The fish after their kinds, totally complete, done. Yes, they will multiply and fill the earth after their kind, but it's complete. All the DNA is there. All the plants are there. All the seeds are there. Nothing else required. No creative ongoing work by God is needed or necessary. Totally complete. Adam and Eve, the first two human beings, totally complete. Exactly the way God wanted them. Very good. Now they'll populate the earth. Adam and Eve were exactly how God wanted them. Fully developed. They weren't cave man and cave woman in need of further development and evolution. Ooh, ooh, no. They were done. They were complete. They were highly intellectual. They were probably way beyond us in years in terms of intelligence. They had no defects. They had no sin. They themselves were geniuses. And they this longevity that they were given over over 900 years. Amazing. This is all before sin. Exactly the way God wanted them to be. They could communicate. Adam, from the very day he was created, could communicate. He was made in God's image. He could reflect God. God is a communicative being. That's how Adam was made, to communicate. He communicated with his wife immediately on day one. He wrote her a love poem, two sentences long in Genesis chapter 2. So he could articulate, think, talk, probably write. And the same thing with Eve, the day she was created. Absolutely amazing. Complete, just how God wanted it. And all of their hosts. Well, does that include the angels? Because people inevitably ask that. Because angels are created beings, right? We know they're created beings. question is, well, where are they? Well, they're not explicitly listed in Genesis chapter 1. And I don't think Moses is deliberately referring to angels here. But we have to go to other scriptures and we find out Maybe when angels were created. We do know from Job 38.7 that apparently the angels were present when God created the earth or fashioned the earth. So angels probably maybe created on day one, definitely before day four based on Job 38 and some of the Psalms. So the angels probably created up front around day one in the angelic realm. But God isn't emphasizing and focusing in on angels in Genesis chapter one because that's not the point. God uh, is focusing on humanity, the human race, through Moses, keep in mind, to two million Jews at the time who had just been in 400 years of slavery in Egypt, subjected to pagan religion and ideology and worldviews for 400 years. Many of these Jews probably didn't have a proper ideology or worldview. They didn't know the truth, and Moses is liberating them by letting them know the truth of how all things began. And so virtually everything he's writing is utterly profound and probably Quite shocking to many of these Jews, 2,000 of them, 1.5 million, whatever it is. And he's, he's writing this, and they're hearing this for the first time. That's, that's Moses' audience here. He doesn't want to focus in on the angels at this point. Moses does talk about angels, because later on in Genesis 3.24, Moses mentions a cherub, an angel that was guarding uh, the Garden of Eden. But that's not the point here. It's focusing on humanity. The original God, how God created everything, how God was distinct from his creation, unlike the Egyptian gods who were part of creation. The true God was the one God, totally transcendent and separate from his creation. Creation was totally finite. You don't worship sun, moon, and stars. That's what Moses is doing here. And he's letting them know, by the way, the seventh day, 
God finished his creation and he rested or ceased from his creation on day seven. And God blessed the seventh day. God sanctified the seventh day. He hallowed it. Unlike now to the Israelites listening to this, that may have been new for 400 years. They're operating in an Egyptian system with an Egyptian calendar, with Egyptian breakdown of years and months. And they didn't necessarily, we know for a fact, historically, they didn't have the same seven day week that the Jews did through Moses. They did have Sabbath rest days, but they were usually aligned and dated by the astral beings in accordance with the moon and the sun. That's how they did their Sabbath. Not so with God. God's seventh day has nothing to do with the sun, moon, and stars. It's attached to the days of creation. And it's blessed. The pagans lived in fear sometimes of the Sabbath day because on the Sabbath day you would try to assuage the capricious wrath of your so-called false god. And they lived in fear. Not, not God's Sabbath day. This was a day of rest, a day of blessing. God ceased he sanctified it. He hallowed it. He made it. He separated it to make the Israelites distinct from the rest of the pagan nations who even had pagan calendars and how they functioned from month to month. So that's important to keep that in mind. Absolutely, totally finished and complete. Done. The completion. Let's look at verse 2 the cessation. And this is built on the foundation of verse 1. There is completion, there is cessation. And so verse 2, Moses writes, by the seventh day, or then on the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. A couple of things to notice here or highlight in verse 2. Notice the repetition of the seventh day. Two times in verse 2, and then look at verse 3. Then God blessed the seventh day. Okay, so in verses 1 through 3, you have the seventh day mentioned three times. That is unique. Moses didn't do that with any other day. He just mentioned day one, one time. Day two, one time. Day three, one time. All the way up to day six, one time. And it was always at the end to complete the thought. Here it's right out of the box, seventh day. And then at the end of verse, in the middle of verse 3, the seventh day. So three times the seventh day is mentioned. That is unique. Moses is making a point here. That is, that is setting the seventh day apart literarily as we read it. There is something unique and special about day seven. And God is being emphatic about it. Not only that, the definite article in Hebrew is attached to the seventh day, not just day one or some of those numbers in other days that have no definite article. Definite article, the, T-H-E in English, the, defines something, highlights something, gives definition to something. That's what's going on here. Not just seventh day, the seventh day, the seventh day, the seventh day, the special seventh day, the seventh day that I want to highlight here that emphasizes and showcases the glory of my creation, which is completed in exactly the way I want it. Day seven, that day seven, this day seven that will be used by God hundreds of years later for his distinct people, Israel, that day seven. And by the way, we'll repeat it again. The word for day that Moses used here in Hebrew is yom, Y-O-M, yom. And 100% of the time in your Bible, which happens hundreds of times in the Old Testament, whenever an Old Testament Hebrew writer uses the word yom or day with a modifier, an adjective in front of it, with a number, it always means a normal day, without exception, without exception. So this was a real day. The seventh day, the seventh day, the seventh day. 
So the fact that even repeats repetition is one of the ways and I talked about this repetition in the Bible many times is a point of emphasizing something to highlight it whether it's good or bad. Remember how Jesus would say when he was mad at somebody Simon Simon that wasn't good. Martha Martha that that was bad. Or when Jesus would teach verily verily amen Amen. Repetition emphatic. That's not poetry. That's just a literary device. And that's what he does here. So he's being emphatic. So God is communicating through Moses, wants us to understand, okay, wow, we need to take note. The seventh day is different. The seventh day is unique just by these literary features that Moses is employing, who was a master at literary skills and writing so he goes on another thing to notice about verse 2 is it's interesting that how much of verse 2 is repeated two times there's a, a, rep, a major repetition that makes up the verse so the beginning of the verse is the seventh day his work which he had done and then moses ends the verse by saying the seventh day all his work which he had done he says the same thing twice with little information in between they're like bookends on this verse. So again, Moses is emphasizing something. What? Well, the seventh day, his work which he had done, his work which he had done. So he's really zooming in on this, this unique Hebrew word being used, his work. being His work, God's work. So that's one of the things that Moses is zeroing in on to emphasize, to highlight, is God's work. It's God's work that is completed. And the word that he chose is very specific. It's used in other passages. It's interesting, this word, his work, God's work is used in Exodus 31, verse 3, referring to the very special person that God would supernaturally call and equip and anoint to do the very special skilled work that needed to be done on building the tabernacle and all of its beautification and all the embroidering that needed to be done. It required supernatural inspiration to do that and pull it off. And that's the word used in Exodus 31, skilled labor that was used to beautify and work on the tabernacle to make it ornate and exactly how God wanted. Just this divine craftsmanship is really what it's highlighting here. A, a master artisan, not, not just anybody, the profane or mundane could do this. It's someone highly skilled with a rare capability. We do that when we look at art and we go to museums and every time I see this amazing statue made out of marble. I just, I got to look at it up close to How did they do that? that? That just boggles the mind, the imagination. So the art always reflects the artist. And that's the point here. This is a masterpiece. God had finished completing his masterpiece as he uses that Hebrew word emphatically, two times repeating it. And indeed, it is a masterpiece. Think of all that. And the, these words being used here, this is craftsmanship. This is artwork. This, this implies design. This implies intelligence this implies someone who is omnipotent an omniscient in what they pulled off in terms of creation and the state of it and the complexity of it in the first six days absolutely mind-boggling the great masterpiece made by the great designer it, it is created with purpose direction to be used in other words it's it's not ran it doesn't reflect just randomness Time and chance out of nothing, random, rolling down a hill like a pile of mud. No. 
the ultimate designer. And Paul comments on this in Romans chapter 1. That is God the creator, God the intentional designer. And that's really being highlighted in verse 2, just the quality of God's creative work, but also the fact that he rested. And so I already mentioned in verse 2 that word rested could be translated as ceased. It's used both ways in your Old Testament, the same word. So either one is fine. Cease, rest, Shabbat, it's the Hebrew word. Here's a quote from a couple of different Hebrew scholars who are recent commenting on Shabbat and the way it's used here. Should it be rest or ceased? And these two men that I highly admire say this quote, lexicographers, that's hard to say, lexicographers and commentators have reached a consensus that the calistem of the verb Shabbat means to cease rather than to rest. For example, Joshua 5.12, Job 32.1. The idea is primarily cessation of activity as opposed to rest. Highlighting completion of the created work. That it is finished. That it is done. The emphasis isn't rest, implying that God is tired. We know God doesn't get tired. As a matter of fact, Isaiah 40.28 says, God does not grow weary. He is omnipotent. So anyway, that's pretty clear. By the seventh day, God ceased. It was already done. He says it two times, the seventh day. In addition, uh, the end of verse 3, it says, which God had created and made. And that's just talking about all things. He created the very beginning, all necessary uh, ingredients. And then throughout, he would create from the earth. Let's go on to after the completion and the cessation. Let's go on to point number 3, and that's verse 3. So verse 1 and verse 2 just... God emphasizes he finished day six. It was very good. It's exactly the way he wants it. It is very good, meaning it is perfect up to this point. It's exactly how he wants it. There is no sin, no disobedience, no disunity, no death, no curse, no predation, no problems, no demons. That's what that means. That was the state of the earth in the very beginning. That's how God wanted it. And then on day seven, it is totally done. It is complete, and it is finished. Also, we could conclude it is finished, it is completed, it is done. Uh, practical implications that we need to keep in mind is that God's creation is not ongoing and continuing to this day. You know, some people actually believe that, that call themselves Christians. Some Many commentators are writing that today. They're trying to accommodate evolutionary science into the Bible. And so what they've come up with, this is a recent view in the last hundred years, that, well, actually, the days are symbolic. They speak of long periods of time. And day seven, because it never really end, ended, we're still in day seven. So day seven has been going on and continuing since God made Adam and Eve. So, in other words, day seven is thousands and thousands of years. And it's continuing on. And God is still creating. And God is still forming. And God is still developing. And God is still refining. Because it's not perfect yet. It's not where it needs to be. That is totally contrary to what he's teaching here. But that is a very common, popular view among some Christians. And particularly Bible scholars. Who don't want to take the days literally. And they just turn the, the blatant meaning of the text on its head. No, it is completed. It is done. It is finished. He ceased. God stopped creating. That's what ceased means. So we're not continuing on in day seven for eons to accommodate Darwinian evolution. Not at all. That never crossed Moses' mind when he wrote this. 
All right, let's go on to the sanctification. That's verse 3. The sanctification, and that is that God blessed the seventh day. Again, verse 3. Sorry to point out that conjunction again, then. An adverb of, or kind of an adverb of time used as a modifier. Then the story goes on. Then after God did this in verse 1 and 2, after he rested. By the way, God didn't do anything on the seventh day by way of action. The only thing he did was rest. So God rested. Verse 3, then, the story goes on. It's continual. We're still on day 7. Then did some, God did something unique. He blessed the seventh day. Now, there were two other times in the Genesis account where God blessed something. He blessed, remember the fishies and the birdies? That they might populate and fill the earth. And then he blessed Adam and Eve. So he did bless his creation. This is the only time that God blesses a day out of the seven days. Once again, highlighting the uniqueness of day 7. There is something unique about day 7. By the way, how many days in a week do we have today? Seven. That is not coincidence. That's not chance. That's not evolution. That's not just American history. Started here. Then God blessed the seventh day. He gave divine approval to day seven. He's going to do something special about day seven, whatever that might be. In other words, the seventh day is unique. And then he goes on, God blessed the seventh day. Then what did he do specifically? He sanctified it. Kadosh, from kadosh. Kadosh is the Hebrew word sanctify. Kadosh literally means to cut. And then that got carried over into to cut, to separate. And then that got carried over and applied to to be holy. Kadosh, that's what it means. So to cut, to separate. So what did God do? He took the seventh day and he separated it. He cut it out from the other six days in terms of making it different, making it special. Kadash. The number one way that Kadash is translated in the Old Testament is consecrate. That's the word you would see most frequently of that Hebrew word in your Old Testament English Bible. Consecrate. So God consecrated day seven. The second most used word is sanctified. In your Bible. So God sanctified it. He consecrated. Uh, another one is that he set it apart. He set apart day seven. We already mentioned that. Another one is that he made it holy. So they all mean the same thing. So when we say that this is where we get the word holy from. So in the Old Testament, God made something holy. That means he set it up. He designated it. Doesn't mean it was holy in and of itself. Usually it wasn't. God designates something by his sovereign choice, like he did with Israel. Israel, who was, they were pathetic, they were sinful, they were lame, they lacked faith, they were compromisers, they ended up being idol worshipers and immoral and all that stuff. Nevertheless, God set them apart. He put his love upon them and set them apart. And he said, you are holy. What does that mean? You are set apart. You are different. I want you to be distinct. You're not like all the other nations. It didn't mean inherently that they were sinless like God. They were just set apart. That's carried over into the New Testament when anybody that is a Christian is called a sanctified one or a holy one. So today, if you're a Christian, according to the New Testament, you are a saint. That, that's cool. Saint Clifford. Saint whoever you are. Or you could also say that you're holy. And that doesn't mean inherently that you don't have any sin anymore. It means what God, how he views you. He has set you apart in light of your faith and love in Jesus Christ. And he's set you apart for a special, he's made you a special person for a special purpose. That's what it means to be set apart, to be holy, to be a saint. And that's where this word comes from. So all that is attached to this word, this idea that the seventh day was somehow was set apart to be uh, distinct, unique, different. In other words, God 
treated the seventh day as special at the end of creation. He treated it as special. Very kind of like at those holidays, Thanksgiving, Christmas, at least at our house. When you go to grandma's house and she's got all the normal dishes and then in the china cabinet are the very special set of china that is only can be used by her permission and with her supervision on holidays like Thanksgiving. And they're beautiful and they're like fine china and they're delicate and you got to handle them with care and you treat them, they're separate from the rest of everything else. They're treated differently and very special. And then you eat off of them in fear and trepidation during the meal, so you can't really enjoy your dinner. Then when you put them back, they, you can't throw those in the dishwasher. Cliff, what are you thinking? Oh, I'm sorry. No, those have to be hand-washed. And by the way, you're a man. You're not allowed to do it. And then the ladies get an assembly line, and they're washing the fine china very carefully, and you just watch the, and then they put it back where it was. That's kind of the idea. Treat as special, valuable, precious, sacred, different, stands out. Treat it accordingly. And that's what God did on the seventh day. He sanctified it. Why? Well, because that was the day where he ceased from all of his creation. He was done. Day seven. Then after that, he doesn't make a day eight. So it goes back to day one. That's where we get weeks from. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and then back to day one. That's where it came from, right here from the Bible, from God. By the way, this is part of God creating time. God created everything for humanity to bless humanity so that man, humanity will thrive on the earth, reflecting him for his glory, ruling on his behalf. Genesis chapter one included in that is time, the calendar to help man, to help humanity manage time and be good stewards. And God graciously giving humanity seven days is exactly what they needed. We didn't need five days. We didn't need nine days. We needed seven days in a week because God said so because he made us because he knows best. And it's worked out pretty good for the last thousands of years because every culture on planet Earth does it still. Isn't that amazing? God is the creator of humanity. He knows what is best. So he ceased from his work on the seventh day, which he had created and made. So here's just some implications of the seventh day of creation and why it was so special or distinct or unique. Uh, the seventh day emphasized cessation and completion of God's work. Uh, the seventh day, God rested, not man. Uh, on the seventh day, God repeated the seventh day three times. He repeated that definite article three times. Also, what's unique on the this seventh day is it's the only day where God didn't bring begin a day by saying, then God said, and then created something. Then God said, then God said. It's the only day where the day doesn't end with there was evening and morning the seventh day. That formula is not there. So this day is unique for many different reasons. And then we conclude with this question. Well, what about this? Right there it says uh, he rested, and that's where we get the word Sabbath from. And we've got the Sabbath day. And I've had Christians in this church ask me, so Pastor Cliff, do we... Do we celebrate the Sabbath? Last week I was reading a, a statement of faith at another local church, and this is pretty common, and it said that the seventh day is the Lord's Sabbath, Sunday, and that we are to regard it accordingly. And we are to cease from work and give adoration, devotion, and worship to God in a unique way on that day. This is in evangelical statements of faith. And, and that's in many of but it specifically said it's the Lord's Sabbath day. 
And I'd say, well, no, actually, it's not the Sabbath day. It's the Lord's day because that's what the New Testament says. Sunday is the Lord's day. So where does the Sabbath thing come from? Well, in the Old Testament, and according to Jewish tradition, and even church history, the Sabbath day is Saturday. Jesus rose on a Sunday. So Jesus didn't rise on the Sabbath. The early church began to practice meeting as a church on the Lord's Day on Sunday on Resurrection Day. The main thing that Christians do when they go to church isn't celebrate the Sabbath. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what we're celebrating. So that's important to keep in mind. So first of all, the terminology. Sabbath means it's Saturday, not Sunday. So that seems simple enough. Well, right here, it's in the first you know, week of creation. God rested on the Sabbath. Shouldn't we? Well, just basic observations. Nowhere in this passage does God give a command to Adam and Eve saying, you know what? You need to rest on the seventh day. He never says that to Adam and Eve. We never see Adam and Eve resting on the seventh day, on the Sabbath. We never see any man or woman of God in the book of Genesis, all the way from Abraham to Joseph. No one is ever resting on the seventh day. It's never mentioned. It's never commanded by God. It's never required by God. The only time, the first time we see a command given by God regarding resting on the Sabbath on Saturday is with Moses. That's the first time we see it. That's the first time it's given. So you've got, theoretically, say Adam was created about 4,000 B.C., and the first time God says anything about a command regarding the Sabbath is 1,400 B.C. from Moses. For the first 2,600 years of earth history, there is not one command from God that humans need to celebrate, honor, practice the Sabbath. It's not there. It was never a requirement. Then God saves the Jews from the Egyptians, and he gives them a new covenant. And he creates a new people called the Jews or the Israelites, his precious nation. He sets them apart, and he starts doing new and different things to make them set apart and stand out. And he gives them a law. He gives them 633 laws, actually. He gives them the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. He gives them a priesthood. He gives them sacrifices. He gives them land. He gives them a tabernacle and then a temple and all these commands. And makes them a unique nation and his people who will bring about the Messiah. And so he's doing something new. And at the very beginning, God gives them a covenant, he called it. I'm going to give you a covenant. I gave you the Noahic covenant in Genesis chapter 9 with the rainbow. The sign of the Noahic covenant was the rainbow. There's always a sign. Many times there's a sign with a covenant God gives to ratify a visual symbol to remind us of the meaning of the covenant. The Noahic covenant, the symbol is the rainbow. Then he gave the Abrahamic covenant. And the sign of the Abrahamic covenant was what? Circumcision. Good. Circumcision. Then God gave the Mosaic covenant. And what is the sign of the Mosaic covenant? Okay, I heard the law. Some said circumcision, whatever. Actually, it's the Sabbath. Did you know that? The Sabbath is the sign of the Mosaic covenant. It says that in Exodus 31. It says that in Leviticus 24. Specifically, the Sabbath, not just the seventh-day Sabbath, but the monthly Sabbath, the feast-day Sabbath, the 50-year Sabbath. The Sabbath shall be a covenant sign for you, my people, Israel, says Leviticus 24 very specifically. So the, the sign of the Mosaic covenant was the Sabbath. Then God said, I'm going to give a new covenant. Jeremiah 31 31 and following, Ezekiel 36 and 37, I'm going to give you a new covenant. And it's going to be fulfilled by the Messiah. And here's all the pro here's the six blessings and promises that will come with the new covenant. He's talking to the Jews at the time. Then Jesus comes along, he is a Jew. 
He lives his life. He accomplishes his mission. He's about to go to the cross. He meets with those 11 apostles. He holds up the cup and the bread. And he said, this is my blood in the new covenant. What is the sign of the new covenant? What is the sign of the covenant God made with the church? It is communion, the Lord's table, the Lord's supper. That's the sign. So every time we take communion, we're being reminded of the sign of the new covenant, this, this blessing that God is going to put the spirit of God on our hearts. It's going to be internal, that Jesus is the savior and he died for all of our sins, past, present and future. And that someday part of that covenant is that God will take over planet Earth on the earth with Jesus reigning on the earth and all of Israel will be saved along with the church. That is the new covenant. The sign of the new covenant. So getting back to these signs, the sign of the Mosaic covenant was the Sabbath. And the Mosaic covenant was a conditional covenant. And it was temporary and it was a sign and it was law, and it was to tutor us and point us to the need of a Savior that would be fulfilled in Christ. And it was a shadow, says Colossians 2. Colossians 2, 16 and following says, Don't let any other Christian or anybody else try to deceive you and mislead you with false religion, false philosophy, human tradition, things like worshiping angels, man-made works, or even obeying a Sabbath. That is legalism. And then he goes on to say that the Sabbath was nothing but a mere shadow of the reality and the fulfillment of Jesus Christ risen and resurrected as Savior. Shabbat, Sabbath, rest. That was temporary rest in the Old Testament. Jesus, the Savior, gives you real rest, ultimate rest, inner rest, spiritual rest, eternal rest, knowing God, being right with him, all sins forgiven forever. Doesn't that ease rest your conscience? All sin forgiven, and when you die, you go to heaven to be in glory with God and your Savior. Amen. So this Sabbath idea was strictly tied to the Mosaic Covenant. So for 2,600 years before Moses, no commands to obey the Sabbath. And then for 1,400 years, Israel had to obey the Sabbath. And then Christ comes, and for the last 2,000 years, no one is commanded to obey the Sabbath. That's how we should understand the Sabbath. So that's the Mosaic Sabbath. Today, for us, the Creation Week Sabbath is different. It should remind us, every time you look at your calendar, oh, seven days, that is awesome. This reminds me of Genesis chapter 1 and 2. This reminds me that God is creator. This reminds me that God rested. This reminds me that God is done with his beautiful creation. This reminds me that I can rest in him and ultimately in Jesus Christ. That's the true meaning of the Sabbath. Let me leave you with... This beautiful passage from Jesus himself, like I said, Sabbath, rest, ceased, Shabbat, it does mean rest in many specific contexts. The Shabbat or the Sabbath under the Mosaic law just provided a temporary rest just for a day. Then you get tired again. But it was a picture of a greater rest that only God could provide through the forgiveness of sin and knowing God through Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus, in Matthew 12, towards the end of his ministry, said this publicly to all sinners, to all who were tired, to all who were guilt ridden, to all who were burdened with guilt from the Pharisees and their legalism and man-made religion. Jesus cuts through all of that and he says, come to me, not, not come to man-made religion, come to me, a person. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. 
Not all who are perfect. Not all who got it together. It's all who are messed up. Come to me, Jesus, the Savior. That's what he was saying. And his promise. And I will give you rest. I will give you rest. You can't earn your own rest. It has to be initiated from God and Jesus. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. That is awesome. Jesus called himself gentle because he was. Humble in heart in his incarnation. And you will find rest for your souls, as he quotes the Old Testament. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In keeping with why, why did Jesus come into the world? He came as a seeking Savior to save those who were lost. And anybody that looks to Jesus as the Savior, believing that he was the God-man who died on the cross to absorb the wrath of the Father of all of their sin on his own body, as dying as their substitute, then he was buried, rose again from the dead, literally in a supernatural body, ascended on high. He reigns as king of kings from heaven today, Lord of the earth, seeking anyone who will come after him and admit they're a sinner and ask them, Jesus, save me. I want your rest. And Jesus promised, you know what? I'll answer that prayer. He's in the business of saving those who are weary and tired. Let's go ahead and go to that blessed savior in prayer. Thank him for our time together. Father, we do thank you for this day, the opportunity to be with the saints, to come to church, the people of God, to worship on the Lord's Day, Resurrection Day, to learn from your word, to be with God's people and have fellowship. And God, thank you for the reminders from your word here in Genesis just about how all things began, the purpose of why you created all things, your desire and intent for us as humans, your solution to our problems, your blessed promise of rest for all who trust in you. God, we celebrate that. How glorious. Thank you for setting sinners free for those who believe in your gospel. God, we give you all the glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.